and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barker, the host of New Books and Law. Today we will be discussing The Big Trial, Law as Public Spectacle by Lawrence M. Friedman, Marion Rice Kirkwood Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. Friedman is, in my opinion, the preeminent scholar of legal history, and I'm extremely excited to have the opportunity. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barker, the host of New Books and Law. Today we will be discussing The Big Trial, Law as Public Spectacle by Lawrence M. Friedman, Marion Rice Kirkwood Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. Friedman is, in my opinion, the preeminent scholar of legal history, and I'm extremely excited to have the opportunity to talk with him about his most recent book today. Professor Friedman, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be on. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself? your background, and how you became attracted to studying law and society? Well, I was born in Chicago, which I think is irrelevant, (laughs) Um, but it's a great city. And I went to law school at the University of Chicago Law School a long time ago. And even in law school, I thought, something's wrong here with the way it's being taught and the way it's being researched. And I was attracted even then, to the idea that we had to learn more about the position that law has in society. And I've been, for many, many years, very active in the Law and Society Association, which is kind of the trade association of people who are interested in the social science study of law. I was even president at one point. And to me, legal history is not just history. It has to be socio-legal history. That is, it has to be a history that ties the development of law into what's happening in society in general. And that's the subject that I've spent most of my academic career on. And would you tell us how you came to write your current work? Well, I've been interested in the history of criminal justice for quite some time. Um, I, together with a student, I did a study of late 19th century criminal process in Alameda County, which is Oakland across the bay from San Francisco. And then I wrote a general book called Crime and Punishment in American History, which appeared in the 1990s. And to my surprise, when I was doing the research for this book, I uh, discovered that very little had actually been done. In a way, that's not true. In a way, there's just heaps and heaps of stuff about this and that crime, but a kind of systematic history of American criminal justice just needed to be done, so I decided to do it. And ever since then, although I've worked on other things, I've been very interested in the history of criminal justice because I think that crime and punishment tell us a lot about our society, what it considers right and wrong, and how it operates. And that led me to a number of subjects, including this one, that is the idea of the big trial, the big criminal trial. Now, most criminal trials are not big, and most of them don't have a jury, and they never get in the newspapers. But I decided to study this very small but statistically significant group of big trials, the ones that make the headlines, the ones that get people excited. And so that's what led to this book. 
which is not, um, it's not a comprehensive book, but it's an attempt to explain what kinds of trials are there, what makes them famous, and what do they tell us about society. And the period is roughly the 19th and the 20th centuries. What are some traits that can be found in many headline trials? Is there anything they all have in common? Well, they do differ enormously from each other, of course. Uh, but what they have in common is, is basically that they are big trials. I mean, that, by definition, that's what I'm studying, which means that they're kind of public dramas. And the subtitle of my book is Law is Public Spectacle. Somebody, uh, you know, somebody is arrested for robbing a 7-Eleven store, and it's their fourth, fourth time that they've been arrested, and there's no real trial. There's a plea bargain. Nobody cares except for the guy and his victim and the families. But those are, the, and that's most criminal proceedings. But but the ones that are the exceptions, what is it about them? And the answer is that the one thing they really do have in common is that they are spectacles, that they're dramas. They're played out in public. And the common law system, which is the one we have, when it uses a jury trial, the principle of orality is important, the spoken word. We all know that when we you know, see it on TV. Cross-examination, the witness sits in the box. The lawyers ask questions. The judge talks to the jury. The lawyers talk to the jury. It's a talk show. It's a drama being played before a public. And there are two publics, actually. There's the jury public, and then there's the public at large. Now, in a lot of legal systems all over the world, this doesn't occur. Uh, trials consist of shuffling documents around. But the common law trial, the one we're familiar with, it's a spectacle. It's a drama. It's, I call it didactic theater. It's theater, and it has a lesson. But the lesson depends on the type of trial. Could you describe your classifications of the different types of headline trials? Yeah, well, I have. Uh, I, I tried to classify them, and I classified them into about 10 or so categories, depending exactly how you count. But they really can be divided into two sort of meta-categories, political trials and non-political trials. And the political trials are trials that have some kind of political significance to them. It's hard to define them more exactly than that, but a treason trial, a trial of people who evaded the draft or burned their draft cards, the trial of the Rosenbergs, who were accused of spying for the Soviet Union, those are obviously political trials. They have political significance. And on the other hand, um, there are trials that you know, involve, let's say, uh, a juicy murder. Uh, the whole category of trials that have no political significance, no overt political significance, but fascinate the public. And they're divided, I divide those into a, a number of categories, some of which I think we will talk about a bit later. But what they have in common only is only that they fascinate the public 
and that they have no overt political significance. The trial of O.J. Simpson is in some ways the classic example. The even more classic example is the trial of Lizzie Borden in 1892, which might just be in some ways the most famous trial in American history of a non-political nature. I mean, we don't have any way of measuring famousness, but uh, books, books and books have been written about it, and they continue to be written. Um, the University Press of Kansas, which published my book, this last month also published another book, yet another book about the Lizzie Borden case. There's also a number of other categories. I, I talk about celebrity trials, which are famous because of the identity of the either the accused or the victim. Uh, the O.J. Simpson trial, again, is a classic example because he was a celebrity. And these trials make headlines partly because of who is involved rather than what was involved. Or if the, tr the crime itself was particularly lurid, um, the trial of, of someone who murders a whole bunch of people. So there are various subcategories of the non-political trial. And there's one in particular, which we'll, I guess we'll talk about a little bit later, which I call Worm in the Bud. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll mention it now, there, because this is the Lizzie Borden case par excellence. These are cases in which there is no celebrity involved. The crime might be lurid or significant in some ways. But what really fascinates the public is that a kind of basic question is asked about society. So Lizzie Borden, if I can take a moment to talk about her. Please. Lizzie Borden uh, was the daughter of a wealthy man who lived in Fall River, Massachusetts. She was in her 30s. She was not married. She was very active in her church. She was the model of the upper middle class or upper class bourgeois woman. And what happens on a hot summer day is that her father and stepmother were brutally killed in the house. Their heads smashed in with an axe, hatchet actually. And for a variety of reasons, very good ones, as a matter of fact, Lizzie Borden was arrested and charged with the murder. And it became an absolute sensation because it questions Lizzie Borden. Who is she? Is it really possible in American society that a woman of this type could commit a crime of this sort? To even suggest that is to suggest something deeply subversive. And that's why the case was so fascinating. And people rushed to her defense. She couldn't possibly have done this, although the evidence against her was quite strong. And she was acquitted. She was acquitted because the jury, in effect, and we can't read their minds, but they said, no, no, we are not going to, we are not going to admit that a woman of this type could commit this kind of crime. So 
that that that's the significance of the Lizzie Borden case. It continues to fascinate people to this day. The house itself is a bed and breakfast now. Anyway, that um, so that that's one a very important kind of trial. I went to a school in Switzerland in 2003. We put on a play about Lizzie Borden. So, <laughs> well, at, during the trial, uh, there were reporters from Europe who covered it. Uh, I mean, sure. yes, even in, even in today, it was really significant. I was telling the story of headline trials, also telling the story of the rise of mass media. Right. So. Uh, <laughs> At one part, at one stage in the writing of this book, I called them headline trials. Um, I changed that name, but still, these trials are public, and they're public in the sense they're open to the public. You can go to the courtroom. Well, if you can get in, but of course, if it's a trial like Lizzie Borden or a trial like O.J. Simpson, you can't get in. So the public takes part in these trials through the media. And so the importance of these trials is whatever the media says it is. So that these trials really grow along with the growth of the media. First, the newspapers. And by the late 19th century, when Lizzie was tried, uh, the newspapers were mass market newspapers vying for the attention of the public. They sent their reporters. Um, they had pictures. They were drawings usually at the time. And that's how people learned about these trials. So the, the whole country couldn't see the trial, but they could read about it in the paper. And then, of course, came radio, and then after radio, television, and it simply magnified the scope. And the O.J. Simpson trial was broadcast on TV. It was televised and and was seen all over the world, actually. Uh, I mean, I had friends during the trial who lived in England told me they had to stay up late to watch the trial. So the the significance of the trial is not just itself, but as it is explored by the media. So you call these trials didactic theater because they bring forward some sort of lesson. What sort of things do you think people learn from these big trials? Okay. Well, of course, that depends on the trial. In the first place, uh, just they learn or think they learn something about criminal process. You know? So if you ask people to describe what happens in a big trial, they, they can tell you something about, they know about cross-examination, they know about witnesses, they know the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. They know something about the shape of the trial. It's very misleading in part because they don't realize how rare a big trial is, they think that it's more normal than it actually is. Nevertheless, they do get some basic information. But the real lessons that are learned from the trial are different. Uh, each trial, if it's significant enough, does have a lesson, but what the lesson is varies from trial to trial. So 
the lesson of the Lizzie Borden case was no church-going woman cannot possibly be a murderer. It must have been somebody else. Society is good. Society is not pathological. It doesn't harbor this kind of pathology. Or at least that's the message that the verdict tried to convey. So in the 1920s, there was a famous, famous trial of Fatty Arbuckle, a leading Hollywood actor and director. He was accused of the rape of a girl at a wild party. And the girl ultimately died. There were several trials. Ultimately, he was acquitted, probably was innocent, although there's some doubt. There have been books about the trials have been written that suggest maybe he wasn't that all innocent. But in any event, and it wasn't a wild party either. But this attracted enormous attention because it seemed to convey to people the idea that Hollywood is a corrupt and debauched place. So each, each trial has a message. The message may be false. The message may be misleading. But each one does have a message. If it didn't have a message, it wouldn't be significant. It wouldn't gather headlines. It wouldn't attract attention. Of course, political trials have obvious messages. And the Rosenberg trial was that the country was riddled with communist spies who were causing enormous damage to the country by betraying atomic secrets. Now, whether that was true or not is another question, but that was the message that that was supposed to convey. And... Uh, the trial of the recent trial of the Boston bomber that conveys the message that we will not tolerate uh, uh, this kind of uh, you know violence and that the country is vigilant and firm in in fighting against uh, terrorists. So each trial does have a message, and some of them are quite explicit, some are less explicit. Uh, the longest trial in U.S. history, longest criminal trial, was the McMartin Daycare Center trial in Los Angeles. Here, the people who ran the daycare center were accused of abusing their children uh, and conducting satanic rituals. And it basically was nonsense, but it went on for two and a half years. Um, and this was a trial, as I interpreted which reflected a kind of panic, a moral panic. It reflected the fear, anxiety that people in modern society have when they turn their children over to the care of strangers. Families today, usually both parents work. There has to be some kind of daycare, but there's an enormous amount of insecurity about this. The same theme is the famous Boston nanny trial in which a nanny in Boston was accused of shaking the kid and causing its death. So these, these become sensational because they tap onto a deep fear, a deep anxiety in society. Okay. So could we talk about the other part of didactic theater now and talk yeah. about 
um, how these trials are a kind of stage play? Yeah, well, that's one of the fascinating things about them. You know, a, a stage play has a story. A big trial has two stories because the prosecution is trying to tell a story and the defense is also trying to tell a story. And of course, it's a very different story. And the question is, which story is correct? I mean, the jury will decide which one they believe and which one they don't believe. And many years ago, when I was writing uh, a book about Oakland, came across a trial in the 1890s of a young girl uh, who was accused of killing her boyfriend. And in fact, she had. She shot him in broad daylight. And he had seduced her, apparently, or that's so it was said anyway. He had gotten her pregnant, and I guess then he dumped her, and she killed him. So the trial was quite sensational. There was no question about whether she did it or not. I mean, she did it. And then the question is, is she really culpable? And so the prosecution, uh, of course, was wanting to show, well, this is, this is uh, just a terrible young woman. She's basically a kind of loose, moral woman, young woman. Um, and she's a murderess. And she has to be punished. And the defense tried to show her as a kind of soiled dove, innocent creature who had been seduced and abandoned by a heartless cat. And so, that, so they even dressed her that way. She used to appear in court clutching a bouquet of violets and wearing a veil and just looking very demure. So you see that that was theater. Both the defense and the prosecution were, were staging theater, were, were kind of play acting, but it was different plays. And that's one of the things that makes these trials so fascinating. Who's right? Which story do you believe? And often that's it's a question. And, and often we still don't know what the answer is. They're still arguing whether Lizzie Borden really did kill her father and stepmother. I'm fairly convinced she did, but there are dissenters. All right. Could you tell us about vigilante movements as didactic theater in the late 19th century? Yeah. Uh, uh, so one of the points made in the book, of course, is that these, these trials are, in a way, dramas. And they're the public view. They're... they're they're staged in public. And in the colonial period, literally, that was literally true. Trials and even executions were held in public. And so I, I have a section of the book in which I describe other forms of public quasi-trials, not real trials, but things like trials. And the vigilante movement is a, is a very interesting example almost exclusively in the West in the late 19th century, in places where some people at least thought that law and order had broken down. And these were movements often led by leaders of society that simply took the law into their own hands. Sometimes they kind of did 
little pseudo trials. Um, and very often, the jury, if you want to call it that, was just a mass of people there who voted on what to do. And then the sentence, if there was one, was immediately carried out. And in uh, Montana, for instance, there's a very well-known book called Vigilantes of Montana. And one of the chapters describes a really hell-raising guy named Captain Slade, who was making all sorts of trouble. And the vigilante decided, well, enough is enough. And they just grabbed hold of him and said, you know, you've, you've gone too far. And they decided that he was guilty of violating the peace and the community and being a bad guy generally. And they strung him up on the spot. So, and this, of course, is done in public with a big crowd. So it's a kind of, a kind of big trial as public spectacle. It also is didactic theater. Now, hopefully we don't do that anymore. Right. Um, could you tell us how the riot that sometimes follow verdicts and big trials are connected to this vigilante past? Well, yeah, as I said, the, the uh, a trial always has two audiences. One audience is the jury and the other is the larger public in and out of the courtroom. And they don't necessarily agree. And these trials sometimes result in verdicts that the larger public doesn't accept and may be angry enough about that they riot. So the rioting is, it, it's not exactly like the vigilante movements it's, and they can't take hold of, of the defendant, but they, they express the dissatisfaction with the verdict in violent ways. There've been a number of examples um, after the Rodney King acquittal. It's usually because the public thinks that there should have been more rather than less punishment. In San Francisco, a Dan White, who killed the mayor and Harvey Milk, um, and he, he was convicted but of a lesser crime than murder, and the riots broke out in the city that expressed the grave dissatisfaction with that result. He went to prison, he served his term, and then committed suicide. Um, so that's uh, that doesn't happen very often. I don't mean the suicide, the, the riot, but when it does, of course, it's, it can be very destructive. What makes a trial political? Can you give us some examples of political trials? Yeah, well, what makes a trial political basically is that it has political significance, and that doesn't sound like much of a definition. Of course, it isn't. But it's very hard to give a more precise definition than that. I've mentioned some examples. The Rosenberg trial. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were accused of giving atomic secrets to the Soviets. Uh, the, these are, this had obvious political significance. And during the McCarthy period, there were a whole series of trials of this sort. Uh, which were meant to convey the notion that the country was 
in danger, endangered by spies or potential spies. And sometimes, and I point this out in the book, the political nature is seized on by the, by the defendants who turn the trial into a kind of theater on their own account, that is, um, anti-war trials, which people are accused of, say, by the instance, burning draft records. And the defendants didn't deny doing that, but they tried to make the trial into a kind of guerrilla theater expressing their opposition to the war, in that case, the war in Vietnam. Uh, so uh, this, this kind of trial is, of course, politically very important, either on the part of the government, which is bringing it, or on the part of the defendants, who are defending themselves and trying to make political capital out of the trial. What aspects of tabloid trials do people find so fascinating? What do these revelations tell us about society? So the tabloid trials fascinate people for a number of reasons. It could be, as I've mentioned already, because of the people involved or celebrities or because the nature of the crime is ex extremely lurid. Uh, but they're fascinating for these reasons and could be for other reasons too, like the reason I suggested that they seem to raise fundamental questions about the whole nature of society. And again, it's hard to think of a better example than Lizzie Borden. So there was a double murder in that case. But you know, if it had been a double murder, say in the slums of a big city, it would have gotten a paragraph in the paper. It was the fact that, in a way, society itself was on trial that made that one so fascinating. And in the 1950s, uh, probably the most notorious trial was the trial of Dr. Sam Shepard. And again, it had some re resemblance to the Lizzie Borden case in this regard. He was a prominent suburban resident in the Cleveland area. I think he was an osteopath. And he was accused of, of killing his pregnant wife. And here, too, the issue was, how can this kind of pathology exist in bourgeois, normal, middle-class society? And the trial was an absolute circus. He was convicted. Uh, the Supreme Court reversed. He was acquitted. And apparently, uh, the evidence suggested he was actually innocent. But So the evidence suggests that Lizzie was guilty and Dr. Sam was, was innocent. Nevertheless, both of those trials were trials in which, in some way, society itself was on trial. What effect does the familiarity we now have with celebrities have upon the trials that involve them? Right. Um, okay. So I spent some time in the book talking about what is a celebrity. A celebrity is not just a famous person. A celebrity is a famous and familiar person. Familiar because we see them on TV. We hear them and so on. And if you look at the difference between, say, Queen Elizabeth II and Queen Victoria, 
the Queen Victoria, you couldn't have been more famous than Queen Victoria, and her face was on coins and so on. But nobody, how many people in England or the world had ever heard her voice? or knew what she dressed like, except when she appeared on ceremonial occasions. And the Pope, for example, no, no one could be more famous than the Pope, but the Pope never stirred from the Vatican. Now today, with a TV culture, we know exactly what Queen Elizabeth sounds like. We know what she wears. Now, a lot of this may be illusion, but we feel we know her. She's a, we know her children, we know her dogs, we know everything about her. The Pope travels. He's a celebrity. A celebrity is not just famous, but familiar. How they sound, how they look, what their habits are. Again, a lot of this may be illusion, but it's an illusion which is widely shared. So we're fascinated with celebrities. We live in a celebrity culture. Now, I have a category called celebrity trials, like O.J. Simpson is a celebrity. But if the trial is famous, the point I make is that everybody in it becomes a celebrity. So in the O.J. Simpson trial, of course, Simpson was a celebrity. But the judge, Judge Ito, he became a celebrity. And even the minor players, the bit players, the witnesses, became celebrities. And at the time that trial was going on, I guarantee you that 90% of the American public could have identified Judge Ito, knew what he looked like, what he sounded like. People who couldn't mention the name of three Supreme Court justices to save their life. So the mass media made it the case that when the trial is big enough, everybody in it becomes a celebrity. And that's a difference from the past. So you've discussed this um, in regards to Leslie Borden. Yeah. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about how identity is at issue in most headline trials? Right. So in a, in a number of my writings, I've been fascinated by the whole question of identity. Uh, and I... Uh, oversimplifying somewhat, identity becomes an issue in a new way in societies where people move around a lot, where there are a lot of strangers and so on. They say, who are these people? If you imagine some tiny village, everybody knows everybody. I became interested in identity in a number of regards. One was I, I did a little research on bigamy. So bigamy becomes a problem in the United States in the 19th century. A man moves from one town to another town and he decides, let's get married again. He just, he's lying. This is a bad thing. It's a crime and so on. But he can get away with it for a while because it's a mobile society. And in some tiny village, you can't be a bigamist because everybody knows you can't marry this woman. You're already married. So identity, who are you really, becomes problematic in modern society because of moving about in strangers. And in every big criminal trial, there's an identity issue. Who is this defendant? 
is the defendant uh, someone who's been falsely accused, or is the defendant a cold-blooded killer? And the fascination of the trial resides in part in this precisely this issue. Who is this? We're getting two stories. They conflict. Who's the real defendant? Which one is real? And curiously enough, the same period is the period that saw the rise of the detective story. It begins in the 19th century. And, of course, there have been tens of thousands of mystery stories written, but they all have one thing in common. That's this identity issue. Who killed X? And in the end, we find out that somebody, if it's a good mystery, it's a surprise. Ah, we didn't realize that this person had another secret identity. They really were a killer. So identity is at the base of the detective story. And if I dare make a plug, I also write these. <laughs> Published six of them. Um, so far, I'm fascinated by mysteries. And, and all of these big trials are mysteries. And the mystery is the identity question. Who is this, Who is this Lizzie Borden? You see this church-going spinster falsely accused? Or is she really pathological killer? Took an axe and chopped in the head of her stepmother and her father. So that's, identity is involved in all that. It gives them their fascination. All right. So I think we're all looking forward to reading some of your mystery novels now. <laughs> um, but also, uh, is there anything else you're working on now? Yeah, I'm together with a, a younger colleague, I'm working on a book about privacy or some aspects of privacy. Again, it has a historical dimension. A lot of people are concerned with privacy, and we're trying to look at certain angles that are new, that haven't been looked at as much before. What is, what is the concept of privacy? Now, for example, we, we're, we're looking at what you might call mandatory privacy, things that you not only have the right to keep private, but that you must keep private. For example, um, we, we published an article about the law relating to nudity. Uh, that is, your body is not only your private part, but, it, but in fact, you must keep it private. And so we're talking about, and then if you, you um, censorship, uh, pornography control and so forth. There are issues that involve the things that must be kept private. And from then we go on to talk about the things which, which you have kind of the option. So anyway, this is a, a work in progress and uh, I hope it comes to something. But then I have a number of other small things I'm working on, but that's the big thing right now. Great. Well, I really look forward to looking at that project, and I want to thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be able to talk about my work. <laughs> <laughs>